You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi everyone, Paul here. We are taking a short break over the holiday season and so we're using the opportunity to revisit some of our favourite interviews. This week's is from Paul Ruse. As a father myself, Paul's views on finding balance in life, of successfully juggling the many demands on your time as a father, husband and leader resonated with me very deeply and I hope you enjoy it and get as much from it as I did. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect... It's not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett. And you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Paul Ruse. Paul is a former Australian rules football player and coach. Paul began his professional playing career in 1982, eventually retiring with 356 games, five best and fairest awards, seven All-Australian selections, and the 1986 Lee Matthews Medal under his belt. He began coaching in 2002 with the Sydney Swans. It was here that he implemented his high-performance dialogue philosophy, and in 2005, he coached the team to their first premiership in 72 years. Paul is a wonderful coach and leader who has managed to find a balance in life that also makes him a great role model. This conversation spans his experience coaching elite-level football teams, doing his best as a father to be present for his family, and his latest work with organisations helping them build the right behaviours so that they don't leave culture to chance. 
The highlights of our discussion for me were his thoughts on what he calls real talk and how this is the cornerstone of accountability and taking teams from good to great, how you act your way into a culture and so behaviours across the group are critical to make sure that new people enter and build on the culture in the right way, and the idea of starting meetings with a gratitude session to shout out to someone who has made a difference, however big or small. I hope you enjoy our interview as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. So, good evening, Mr. Paul Roos, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. We're looking forward to chatting to you too, Paul. We, um, Jim and I love talking a little bit about Australian football, but could we just start with something really simple? Where are you in the world and what have you been up to today? Yeah, well, I'm in Hawaii. I'm... Um currently living in Melbourne, but we, we sort of left Melbourne, got out. My wife's American, so we were able to visit her. Dad was a bit crook and we were able to get out of the country, which was great. Spent uh, about a month there and we're now in Hawaii. I have a house in Hawaii, which we bought six years ago, which is nice. So we were, we were able to, uh, to get out there. So today uh, I had a good day. I played a game of tennis, which was nice. Had a little bit of a swim and did some work. So good day, productive. Well, I won't start with how envious I am as I look outside and see the grey skies and the six degrees. Uh, instead, let's talk about all things coaching. And I'd like to start by winding the clock back a little bit, actually, because you've had exposure to some great coaches in Australian rules football, people like Robert Walls, David Park, and, and of course, perhaps one of the greatest of all time, Ron Barassi. You've also experienced many others on your study tours across America and Europe, which you've written about extensively. So I'd like start by asking you, what is it you think the great coaches do differently? Yeah, well, maybe to put into context, context with the listeners, Australian rules football was pretty much a part-time role when I first started. So back in 1980, played my first game in 1982. So the guys you mentioned, Robert Walls was a school teacher, David Parkin was a lecturer, at, I think it was Deacon at the time. Certainly Barras was more fully professional when I went to Sydney. So I went to Sydney to play in 95 and that's when the professional sort of era started. So in answering the question, there's been a huge transition in AFL coaching because you can imagine, you know, Robert Walls as a school teacher all day and we were coming down and training you know, at five at night and training at 6am or 6.30 in the morning. There wasn't a lot of technical stuff that we could learn and there wasn't a lot of stuff around relationships and culture and all those sorts of things. So most of the culture was sort of taught by the players themselves. You know, you just learnt to train hard or um, whatever the, the role models or the leaders used to do. So from a coaching point of view, it probably evolved in the mid-90s. Barras was, was, was really, really good. You know, his reputation, Alex Ferguson, I guess, from Manchester United, so it's a sort of similar concept. But as we moved to the mid-90s, the late-90s, it then became full-time. So... In answering the question, probably the great coaches when I first started were really simple, really simple messages, really drove high standards, were really hard on the players, and it was sort of sink or swim. You know, that's just the way it was. As we moved into the, the fully professional na nature of football, it then became about what are those standards? You know, how can we build a relationship with the players? What is the culture of our footy club? Yeah, then we started to become really technical. And a lot of, to be honest, a lot of the AFL followed soccer, that real keepings off mentality. Yeah, chipping the ball around, keeping up the opposition, which is very soccer-like, building the ball from the back half, getting into the forward line, et cetera, et cetera. 
So it's a way more technical game now. So I think the coaches from now you know, have a, a great technical expertise, but to be a great coach now, you have to build really high standards with your, your group and on the back of those high standards, you have to build you know, really strong relationships. Paul, you've said it's easy to be mediocre, to become the best, you've got to have really good behaviours. And so I'd like to ask you, what behaviours are central to your coaching philosophy? Yeah, look, I've said that after when I coached eight and a half years for Sydney and then I went to Melbourne for three years and, and also watching games over and over and over again, talking to other coaches. As you said, I did a study tour you know, in America in 1999. And the difference is it's very hard to be great. It's not easy and you have to set the standards and what, the way we did it at Sydney and we started at Melbourne was the players involved in those standards. What do you want to stand for? You know, what, what's your brand? What's the Sydney brand? What's the Melbourne brand? And drive those standards relentlessly. And on the back of that, you've got to be, have a really good technical game style that stacks up in finals. So you have to be a really good technical team as well. And then you have to build really good relationships. And to get the players to really believe in what you're doing you have to have to think you care about them and really understand that it's not the typical top-down approach anymore. You know, coach yells at you, coach screams at you. It's no, we're in this together. We're building this together. And there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into being a great team. I, I, I recognise that more than ever when I watch the footy now, having coached for so many years and having seen teams that have been successful over a long period of time. Probably the best way I sum it up is to me there's two types of teams. There's a behavioural-based team and there's a talent-based team. Now, a talent-based team can win when their talent isn't going really, really well, but they're not going to win over time because all they are is based on talent. If their talent plays well, then they'll win. A behavioural-based team is a team that understands their standards, lives and breathes them week in, week out. One player gets injured, another player comes in, plays their role. They might drop a bit when their talent drops, but they don't drop anywhere near as much as the other team because they're really high on standards. And as I said, over... 30 sort of seven years of being involved in football, you know, I've never been more convinced. Richmond just won the grand final, behavioural-based team. The Giants missed the eight, talent-based team. There's never been a greater example of, of two different organisations. Well, just listening to you, I, I was thinking of something I'd read in preparation for today, and I think, it, I think it was something you'd said where you used to be that you had to perform for the coach to care, but now you've got to care as a coach in order for the players to perform. Would you say that's something that's happened in the last 10 years, 15 years? When has that transition occurred? Yeah, I think, again, probably in the late 90s when coaches had way more time. I mean, it's very hard for Robert Walls and David Parkin to build relationships when, as I said, you get down to training at maybe four. You're out on the training track at five. You train for three hours. You jump in the car. Sorry, you jump in the shower, then jump in the car and you go home. And back in, back then, we had sort of 60-something players on the list. So it was, it was just it was literally impossible for coaches to build relationships. Suddenly, you know, mid-90s, late-90s, players were full-time. You know, they were coming in all day. So then you had the ability to connect with the players. You know, players coming past your office, walking into your office, talking about how was the weekend, you know, how's your wife, how's the kids. You know, so you had to be prepared to commit to relationship building. And, and the poor coaches don't do it and the good coaches do it really, really well. So the transition probably was around about the late 90s, but there's still some coaches that don't do it really well. When did it, when did it become really trendy in a sense? Probably around the 03, 04, 05, 2000. You know, then Alistair Clarkson, you know, with, with Hawthorne and then the dynasty of 
Geelong with, with Bomber Thompson and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So more recently, sort of late 90s, early 2000s. Paul, you now work with organisations, helping them identify their key behaviours and hardwire them into processes and culture in the organisation. What have you found most surprising in your work with corporate teams? Yeah, I think the, the most surprising thing is how little time they spend on their culture. That, that's probably the difference in sport and in business. I, I think that's the thing that shocked me, um, having finished coaching Melbourne sort of four years ago and being involved with performance by design for the last four years. That's probably the biggest thing that shocked me, how little companies put into their culture. And often they think by putting a sign up, getting everyone in a building together, um, and everyone coming in from you know, nine to five or whatever, that we're going to build great relationships. We're going to have a common set of standards and purpose and values and everything's going to be fine. That, there's no doubt. That's, that's the thing that surprised me the most. I'm interested, Paul, from your perspective as an elite level coach who's now worked in the private sector, I'm wondering if you could share an example from any sport is fine where you've seen a lack of I want to use the word values, but it could be a lack of culture that has led to them mismanaging the situation, something that's really jumped out at you. Yeah, well, maybe I'll just go through both footy clubs a little bit and and sort of set them up a bit. When I took over Sydney Swans, obviously a lot of your listeners won't know who they are, but we hadn't won a premiership at that stage for, I think, 69 years when I took over. But what I noticed, we had a really good group of players. We played in the grand final in 1996. So, so from a standards point of view, we were actually pretty good. We probably just didn't have a, a shared purpose or a shared brand or whatever. So we quickly established our behaviours. To the players' credit, from day one, they really picked up on it. We picked our leadership group and Stewie Maxfield became the captain. And we played in the finals in 2003, 2004, won the premiership for the first time in 72 years in um, in 2005. So it was relatively seamless once we put the system in place. When I got to Melbourne, really good players and good people, but no idea of how to play AFL football and really no idea of what the leadership group was supposed to do. And the leadership group, those are listening, a leader is fundamentally first and foremost a role model. You know, if you want to be a leader, you have to be a role model. You can't ask people to do things you're not prepared to do yourself. So I think the biggest thing that I noticed is our leadership group just really didn't know how to play and how to behave and how to act. So we had to spend a lot of time with our leaders. Until we could get the leaders up to speed, I knew it was going to be really difficult to turn the team around. But to the leaders' credit, they worked hard, they worked hard, they worked hard, they worked hard. But it's a, but it's a slow process. And then it comes back to choice. Do I sign up to it? Do I agree to these set of behaviours and values? And then as a leader, do I hold myself accountable to them first and foremost? And that took a fair while at Melbourne, whereas at Sydney, it really happened overnight, which was fantastic. And then can I challenge my teammates and reward my teammates? So is that a, is that a reasonable response to, to the sort of question you're asking? I can, I can certainly go into more specific detail if you like. No, it is. I'm somewhat familiar with the Sydney example and, and the values and culture being player-led. I, the, the Melbourne example is not something I'm as familiar with, but perhaps as a follow-up question, the culture that was created in your Sydney team, the Bloods culture, that had specific values, I don't have them written in front of me now, but there was never anything to my mind that was, was there, sorry, the question is, was there anything similar that came out of your time in Melbourne? 
Yeah, typically there's a number of things. But the, the thing that I loved about the system we created at Sydney and Melbourne is it's, a, it's the player's choice, not from a technical point of view. So I want to make that really clear. So me as the coach or, you know, Nike as the shoe brand, you know, the technical people put the shoes together. But what we're talking about here is how we're going to act as a group of people within an organisation. So there's the technical side and there's the behavioural side. So we believe that we had a really good technical game plan at Sydney and took that to Melbourne. Um, and then the players themselves have to create. What do we stand for? What are we going to reward? What are we going to challenge? So they are slightly different because it has to be from the heart. It has to be what the players themselves want to create. Probably the, the greatest example of Melbourne is we were able to get to a really good stage in the game. For those who don't know, I was a senior coach for three years and part of it was a succession plan. You know, we took over a club that was 2-20, and 20, two wins and 20 losses. Is, I think it was the fifth worst season in AFL history. And through the process, a similar process we used at Sydney, clearly we started a long way back. We won the premiership at Sydney. At Melbourne, we set ourselves up from a two-win team to a 10-win team and just outside the finals. So it was really well set up. Yeah, the problem that Melbourne now have is they just let the standards slip, you know. And when you let those standards slip, the tipping point is really a fine line. You know, there's, there's an enormous amount of talent there. They've built really strong relationships, but they don't want to hold each other accountable and have what we call in our business real talk, just have real conversation with each other. This is what it's expected of you. Well done. You did it really well. Bad. We don't do it like that. Don't do it again. So they're not prepared to have those really honest conversations and hold each other accountable. And that's that concept of good to great. It's, it's easy to be a mediocre team as Melbourne are at the moment, it's very difficult to be a great team as Richmond are at the moment. There's a lot of sacrifices, a lot of discussion. Overall, you've got to hold each other accountable and Melbourne just aren't prepared to do that and, and Richmond are. Just talking about real talk for a minute, Paul, I want to tie it back to a comment I, I read that I believe was attributed to you and I hope it was attributed correctly. And it was changing culture takes time and practice, but also a safe environment this idea of safe environments is somewhat controversial. You know, some people like it. Some people think that's not the world. In your context, what is a safe environment where you have this real talk? Yeah, the safe environment is created by the leaders. And I'll give you an example. You know, so we, if we start with a set of behaviours and everyone agrees to them, it's a learned skill. It's not, it's not as simple as then we start getting everyone saying, do this, do that. The first part of it is, clearly articulate what's acceptable, and then often we start in a subtle way. You know, we, we do it, Paul, well done, fantastic what you did yesterday, that was great. Everyone in the room says, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. Paul Ruse is rewarding Paul for that behaviour. Fantastic. So we start to have conversations. How do we create a safe place? It's a great, great question, Paul. We create a safe place as the leader. I'm the first one to receive the real talk. I'm the first one in the room that... I say to people, what am I doing really well? What can I do better? As the CEO, as a senior coach, as the captain of a footy club, that's creating a safe space. Because if I'm prepared to accept the feedback as the CEO or as the coach, then everyone in the room should feel comfortable. And we do it right time, right place, right way. So there are some strategies around it because I've often heard of this notion of 360-degree anonymous feedback, which for me is just complete garbage. I mean, if you're trying to set a a culture up of transparency and honesty and trust and psychological safety, 
That's the worst thing you can possibly do is anonymous 360 feedback. Because let me tell you what the first thing happens is, oh, who said that about me? Oh, I bet you, I'll bet you that was Paul. He doesn't like me. As opposed to in an open forum, in a controlled environment, Paul says to me, look, Bruzy, you know, I love the way you're really enthusiastic. Can you please just not butt in as much in meetings? You know, we love your input, but it'd be, oh, Paul, look, thank, thank you very much. I didn't realise that I was doing that. Fantastic. We have a conversation. It's, it's facilitated um, by someone in the room as opposed to who said that? Who, who was that bloke that said that about me? Bloody, that, that's not me. Oh, yeah, I reckon I know who it is. So 360 anonymous feedback, that's not creating a psychological safety in a safe environment. Leaders receiving feedback, right time, right place, right way, that's creating a really safe environment for everyone to be honest and open and transparent about what's valued and what's challenged. I think there's a there's layers of feedback and learning to accept feedback and give it is is a skill in itself, I think. But how about this challenge of you're talking about this room, you're the senior coach, highly decorated, you know, you've coached premierships, you've played in successful teams, and you've got a first year rookie sharing feedback. That dynamic's difficult. But how what are the tips in managing that? Because that is a real scenario you've got graduates in a in a large organization they're very comfortable with social media they're happy to throw questions up they're happy to raise their hand they're used to giving feedback they have a higher sense of entitlement and they're not afraid to speak how do you handle that dynamic paul what would be your advice there yeah again every interaction the leader is involved in i say this all the time the leaders are getting watched so you're absolutely right the young person paul ruse walks into an organization just finished um, college, 23 years of age, starts working. Everything that the leader, the sales manager, the CEO, I'm watching. That 23-year-old is watching every single movement of that leader. And that's what I say when I talk to leaders and we work with leaders at Performance by Design, every interaction is being watched. So you can take those interactions as a tremendous opportunity. Equally, you got to understand if you mess up in a, team, in a meeting, a board meeting, sales meeting, review, et cetera, et cetera, that 23-year-old is watching it. And to your point, the younger generation are prepared to speak up. They want feedback. They want information. All right, so, so my point is in a broad sense without being specific in terms of exactly the company and the feedback and all that sort of stuff, just be aware that every time that 23-year-old is watching, every meeting that he's in, so what we're trying to create, and it gets back to my original point, before when you asked about the biggest surprise, if we're not conscious of our culture and we're not consciously working on our culture, then that 23-year-old can pick up some incredibly bad habits through that process. People yelling in a meeting, people being rude to each other, you know, people not turning up on time. And then all of a sudden, what is that young person doing? Everyone wants to act their way into a culture. Or I want to feel valued, so I'm going, okay, at the end of the first week, well, no one was on time, so I'm going to be late because I want to. I want to. I don't want to be the first one here because that looks uncool. Everyone seems to yell at each other, so I better start yelling at each other. As opposed to, we start off the first meeting I work walk into as a 23 year old. Everyone's on time. No one's on their phones. The meeting starts. We do a gratitude session at the start of the meeting. We do a shout out. You know, who wants to give a shout out to someone in the room about someone's done something really well. And then we get into the technical side of it. All right, he's watching. Oh, gee, that's interesting. They've rewarded, there's 10 people in the room. They've rewarded five people for speaking up at last week's meeting. 
They've rewarded four people for you know, being you know, really diligent and, in, and delivering on their word and getting their work back. I just noticed that that one person that they gave some constructive feedback took it really well and said, look, thanks very much. It won't happen again. Every interaction, you see what I'm saying? If you're consciously working on your culture, then you will create a really good culture. But what we talk at Performance by Design is we take the chance out of culture. I right? don't leave your culture to chance. We take the chance out of culture. And that's how you get that 23-year-old really comfortable with receiving feedback, understanding he doesn't have to talk up and yell at every meeting and just because he's a millennial and he's on social media and all that sort of stuff, okay, he's respectful, he receives the feedback. When he feels comfortable, he's asked, you know, young Rusey, what, what do you think now? You know, would you like to, you've been here two weeks, would you like to give Paul, the sales manager, a little bit of feedback? You know, what's he doing really, really well? So really important, Paul, what you said before, it's a learned skill. We just don't rush into, yeah, launching into a whole lot of feedback until we know what we're giving the feedback on, the parameters, how we're doing it, and the manner of which we're doing it. I talk about giving feedback from the heart, not from the head. If you give it from the heart and you care about someone, all right, right time, right place, right way. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, one of the things that I read in preparation for today that really resonated with me was was your thoughts on the leader having to distance themselves from the players as being antiquated. Many leaders struggle with finding that line between being close enough to the players as an individual to show that you care, as you talked about in your opening, but also removed enough to make dispassionate decisions when when times are tough. What advice have you got for leaders on finding that line? Yeah, look, it was funny because when I finished playing, the best thing that I ever did, and I think I've got it here somewhere, was right down 25, it happened to be 25 points, but the things I liked about my leaders and the things I didn't like about my leaders. And there was nothing in there when I wrote, wrote it down that a leader shouldn't be too close to his players. All of it was around constructive feedback, positive feedback, good communication skills, really clear, articulated at quarter time, half time, three quarter time. And I'm sitting there thinking, hang on, if that's what I'm writing as a player and that's what I want from my leader, then as a leader, that's what I want to give to my players. And we do this similar exercise now with, with our exec teams and GMs and things like that. And it's amazing when we do it, the leaders that resonates with them and never the ones that were the rude, obnoxious, you know, people that didn't want to build relationships. It was always that person that really invested in someone, really cared about someone, 
So look at it from a different perspective. Don't look at it from the leader's perspective, all right? Look at it from the follower's perspective. What's the follower want? Clear guidelines, great KPIs in terms of his technical, and some real clarity around how he's going to get there. Now, if, if you become, and I have to say this all the time, I didn't seek to be friends with my players, but I didn't seek not to be. And I read somewhere where a great test of a leader is how many weddings you get invited to of your staff. And I thought that's a really, it is, it's a really, really interesting way to look. And that's and that by no way, shape or form says that I'm not going to give hard feedback and I'm not going to be a um, strong leader. You know, I've had some you know, really honest conversations with Stewie Maxfield and Brett Kirk and, you know, the leaders of the Sydney Swans with Nathan Jones and Jack Viney, uh, Jack Grimes, the leaders of the, the Melbourne Footy Club. It's just, it's just a balancing act. You know, it's head and heart, head and heart, head and heart, head and heart. And I always say this, it's exhausting being a good leader. If you think leadership's easy, you're in the wrong business because it's not. It's very exhausting. It's very difficult if you want to do it properly. But a lot of leaders are lazy and they take the easy way out, top down. I'll just tell everyone what to do. And that's just the wrong way to go about it. I want to talk about it being hard and tiring, if I can, because I, I did read the 25-point coaching. I've got the written, word written down here, manifesto. I'm not sure you titled it manifesto, but it was 25 points. And when I read it in preparation for today, I thought my first reaction was through my corporate lens. And I thought, ah, oh, it's a really good example of moving from understanding to action. But then you know, I sort of thought about it for a couple of days and I tried to look at it from a different angle. And I, th- I, I thought it was about moving from empathy, which is understanding, to compassion, which is acting on your empathy. And so it really, I, I then engaged with the list quite differently. But this led me to this question around, how do, yeah. have, you, have you ever experienced compassion fatigue? And when you did, how did you deal with it? Well, I, I say this all the time because people ask me a lot, you know, are you going to coach again? It's like having 44 kids. It's exhausting. You know, there's 40, for those who don't know, there's 44 players on the list. You're effectively got 44, when I say children, they're not like little children, but they're like your kids. They're like, you've got to care for each and every single one of those 44. You talk about fatigue, absolutely. Um, And that's why you have assistant coaches. And that's why, you know, the difference between uh, corporate and football is we really lean on each other. You know, if you want to call our, our coaches, assistant coaches, the executive team, we work really closely together and we work as a team. And when the fatigue comes, it might be, you know, look, Benny Matthews, can you go and talk to Jack Viney, mate? I spoke to him yesterday and we lean on each other. We're, it's not up to the, to the coach or the CEO all the time to be the, the backside kicker or the well done, well done, well done. If you've got an executive team, use them. Don't just call them a team by, by name, use them. So the fatigue is definitely offset by the group of people you've got around you. It's offset because we put leadership groups together within the playing group. So you've got a really good ally within Stewie Maxfield, with Nathan Jones, with Jack Viney. So you're not the one that's doing it all the time. But it's certainly very tiring because every single player, every single person in your organisation thinks they're the most important person in that organisation. And they should because they've got to get the best out of themselves. So for the GMs and the sales managers and the CEOs, they've got to think like that that those five, 10, 100 people are really, really important. So it is exhausting. Use the resources, use the people around you. And when you are tired, take a break. One of the, one of the best things I heard is your own health will determine the health of your business. 
never a true word spoken at the moment in the in what the world is going through. If, if you can't look after yourself, how on earth can you look after your staff? It's impossible. And I, I, I see too many leaders turn up tired, out of shape, not eating well, not exercising, not looking after their mindfulness, their, you know, their, their yoga, their meditation or breathing or whatever. And it becomes even more exhausting for them because they just can't cope with it. Paul, you're well known for being calm, at least outwardly, particularly on the sideline. And your wife, a big proponents of meditation, you've used it with your players. You talk about it in all and many of your writings. What are the benefits you've seen athletes take from meditation, yoga, and how have you seen it impact their performance? Could you talk about that for a little bit for us? If we continue the, the theme on the differences between elite sport and corporate world, elite sport is a genuine high-performing team. You know, so when we started meditation in 2003 with the Sydney Swans, it was, it was really groundbreaking stuff. And we didn't force it on the players. And it's no coincidence that the best players were the ones that, that chose to do it with Tammy, you know, Adam Goods and Craig Bolton and Jude Bolton and Brett Kirk, because they want to be successful. They want to be high performers. You know, the ability to remain calm under pressure, the ability to be present, the ability to visualise when you're going out before a game and seeing yourself doing really good things. We then made it compulsory at Melbourne Footy Club. And you can imagine how many scars they were you know, when it took over Melbourne, six years of losing, two wins the year before, 20 losses. So we meditated before every main training session. In our second year, we visualised before we went out in the field and it made significant difference to the players, their ability to forget mistakes, just leave it behind, be present in the game, less stressful. And it just relates to every part of your performance and every part of your life. Um, and Tammy's a great proponent. She has a PhD, you know, did a dissertation on meditation and, and she can articulate more than I can the absolute physiological benefits of meditation. But really, really high-performing people are present and meditate on a regular, regular basis. And again, you know, I would encourage all CEOs, all leaders to take up a, a practice, even five minutes a day. Tammy has a great website, tammyroos.com and provide some fantastic tutoring. But again, it's something that the corporate world sort of talks about. I talk about walking the walk, not talking the talk, and great footy clubs, you know, walk the walk, and they do everything really, really well. You mentioned yoga, you know, acupuncture, um, you know, Pilates when it first started, meditation, visualisation, breathing exercise, all those sorts of things they take extremely seriously. I actually watched uh, a video that, Tammy put online recently with uh, one of your players, Adam Goods, an all-time champion of the game and Australian of the year, very outspoken individual with a lot of positive uh, things to say. Watching it, I got the sense at the end that the change it had made in Adam was that he was, um, you know, I often hear coaches say standards are what you're prepared to walk past. But I got the impression with Adam that standards were conversations he was willing to walk past. And all of a sudden, he said, I'm not going to walk past that conversation. So it almost led to a, he almost talked about a transformational change. And I'm sure meditation wasn't the only part of that, but it was a big part of looking inward to find strength to, to go outward. Would you would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Adam, I don't think he absolutely articulated this way during the talk with Tammy, but I know that I could recognise when he wasn't meditating, it was really interesting. And 
I, he'd come into my office and he played a couple of bad games, which didn't happen very often. And I'd say, mate, how are you? He goes, oh. I said, you're not meditating. Oh, he goes, no, nah, I'm not sort of thing. So it became a really obvious sign of his performance, to your point. And I think he articulated in a slightly different way with Tammy. And he also, I think it allowed him to understand himself more. You know, and Tammy talks about, I think the average person has about 80,000 thoughts. And when we go, go to sleep, that's not resting your brain. When you're meditating, you're actually resting your brain, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you're giving your, your brain a rest. So he, he had his ability to understand himself through meditation and then also through the connection with the leadership group and how valuable he saw that. And he really wanted to be a leader and he wanted to be part of, you know, the Sydney Spons, the blood culture, you know, the family that we created, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, you've, I think you've articulated that really well as to what it meant to Adam and how important it was to him. So, Paul, I'd like to go back to 2005. You win the premiership that year. 72 years was the the drought. But in the lead up to that, you were criticised by the CEO of the league, a gentleman called Andrew Dimitrio. And he came out and said, your style of play will never win a premiership. That strategy won't work. And yet it did. And so I'm wondering if you experienced any self-doubt at that time. And if you did, what advice have you got for other leaders on dealing with self-doubt when the pressure spikes like that? Yeah, look, you know, and as you said, for those that, that don't follow AFL, which most listeners won't, I mean, he was the CEO of the AFL. So, you know, it was, a, it was a big call for him to say something like that. And the Sydney Swans are in really a non-AFL town in New South Wales, which is more of a rugby league, rugby union town. So it was, I liken it to the, the CEO of Coca-Cola, you know, saying, look, I wouldn't drink Coca-Cola in New South Wales. I'd drink Pepsi. You know, it's just a bizarre thing to say because we were the one and only team in New South Wales and we were the brand. We were the AFL brand. And for him to trash our brand and the AFL brand was was quite extraordinary. So is there self-doubt? Probably yes. But I think the biggest thing for me and what I've learned over time and why I think Andrew was completely out of line is know your role and understand what you're good at. Andrew Dimitri could not coach the Sydney Swans for, to save himself, and I couldn't run the AFL. So what? It, so when it be, if it had to come from, you know, Ron Barassi or you know, David Parkin or someone like that, then it's a different conversation. But when it comes to someone that's the CEO of, of the AFL and is not a coach, I think that's the first thing. So I really understood that he had no idea how to coach an AFL footy team in the same way that I had no idea how to run the AFL. I also felt that we were just playing poorly. You know, it wasn't our game style. It was actually the fact that we were just out of form at that particular time. And then you're leaning on your staff, your players, and, and really it probably galvanised us because we, we were really strong in, again, for those of you who don't know the history, I took over in 2000, midway through 2002. We won six out of our last 10 games. We were tipped to finish bottom going into 2003. We played played in the preliminary final in 2003. We played in the semi-final in 2004. So we'd had two years of pretty good success before he said what he said. So it was, was sort of a strange thing to say, but we knew we were just playing poorly. But you've got to lean on the people around you. And I think what I would say for the CEOs listening and leaders listening, it can be lonely. Reach out. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. You know, ask your two IC. Do you think I'm doing a good job? 
Do you think we need to change the product? Do you think our strategy is right? Don't think you need to have all the answers. I had really good people around me and they were like, no, no we, we just got to play better. I think staying calm in those moments as well and not reacting, you know, not being reactive is really, really important. Yeah, you know, there are a multitude of ways, but everyone feels under pressure and everyone feels a little bit insecure at certain times. So hopefully there's some tools there for those people listening that are perhaps under pressure right now, which a lot of people are around the world. Just remain calm, ask for advice, ask for help. Who was the person that's criticising you? Is it relevant or is it just noise? Because what I've seen time and time again is when the media or someone's made some noise in Australian rules football and the coach has changed, invariably what happens? They get the sack anyway. All right, so be really strong on what you're doing, okay, and you'll get through those those periods. As long as you're not banging your head against the wall just for the sake of stopping, you know, that, that's when it just becomes stupidity. So really good awareness, really good people around you, and the ability to, to really review really well and everything will look after itself. Paul, in 2008, your ability to stay calm, find balance as in your role as a father and your role as a coach was actually recognised and you were awarded the Australian Father of the Year. That must have been hugely gratifying. I, actually, as a father, I can't think of anything that would be – well, of course, there's other things that are more gratifying, but it's nice recognition that you're doing a good job that can often, in a world where being a coach can often be quite selfless. What advice do you have – and you must get asked this a lot on finding balance because you're so good at it. You're known for it. It's a skill that is hard to develop. Yeah, look, I think the first notion, there's a number of strategies around it which I learned over time. The first one is this notion of work-life balance is garbage. We've got to stop talking about work-life balance. It's life balance. It's not like you go to work and you've suddenly got no wife and no kids and you come home and you've got no job. So if you can somehow integrate the two, because it's your life, that's what I learned. This is my life. My life is my wife, my two kids coaching the Sydney Swans. That's my life. It's not work-life balance. Then within your life, find balance. You know, so I was lucky to work pretty close to the kids' school. At lunchtime, I'd go down and watch their, their carnival. On a Thursday morning, I'd take them to brekkie and then drop them off at school. So when it's life balance, it integrates so much easier. Okay, saying no, it's really important as well. I think as certainly you can imagine as a senior coach of an AFL team, you're asked to do a lot of things. Okay, say no. The third and I think the most important thing, don't wait for the fancy trip to Aspen or Paris or, you know, Africa. Just give of your time. And that's something I learnt and the, probably the proudest thing I am is when my son, my oldest son, Dylan, is in the men's health space, as we talked before, gets off and asked about me. He says, I just remember dad making an effort. I remember dad would get on a midnight flight from Perth. You know, I had the choice. Will I get on a midnight flight from Perth and come home and watch my boys play footy on the Sunday? Or will I get some sleep and, and arrive Sunday afternoon? It was an easy choice for me. I'm going to get on the plane, get home. But I remember when he said that, he's, you know, it's sort of like we just spent time with us. It wasn't, oh, dad was great because he took us here, 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 here. And it was it was really interesting to hear that. So what I would say to the dads, mums and dads and out there, just make time. And when you're with them, be really present. All right, don't be on your phone. Don't be on your computer. Once they go to bed, you can do that. It's a really automated, interactive world. 
be really, really present when you're with your kids. Um, and hopefully there's two or three really valuable tips for people out there because it is one of the great um, struggles that we all, we all face. Paul, there's actually some speculation in the papers that your coaching career may not be over yet. I don't want to get into that and ask you, but what I would like to ask you is about legacy. And I've listened to some conversations where you've talked about it, but I'm not sure you've ever been directly asked. And so I would like to broach the subject and say, what's the legacy you believe you've left so far as a coach? Yeah, it's a funny question that because it's legacy is probably what other people think of you. It's an interesting concept and it's something that you get asked a bit, but I always wrestle with that. I think the legacy that I have left is the player empowerment. The culture can be created. You know, you can't, you don't have to leave it to chance. You can if you want to, but I think it's culture can be created and sustained success can, can happen over a period of time. You know, with Sydney, with Hawthorne, with Richmond now, and I think we were the pioneers, and, and we not meaning me, and that's the other thing I, I firmly believe in. It's not my legacy, it's the legacy created with the people that I came in contact with. It relates to all the people I played with at Fitzroy and played with at Sydney, and we collectively created at Sydney together. All the Sydney people came with me to Melbourne and we started to create something special at Melbourne as well. So I think it's just this notion of, of getting people involved, making people feel valued in their workplace. And in our workplace, it happened to be a footy club. And I'm really proud of the relationships I've built with the players. Um, I'm really proud, proud of the way they speak about their footy club. So that's probably when you think about the legacy, um, it's somewhat changing the landscape of AFL football, along with a lot of people that, that helped. It, it certainly, it was an idea that was in my head, but it was created by a lot of people that I came in contact with over many, many years of, of being involved in footy. And to Sydney's credit, I mean, what a great footy club. And we started the same journey at Melbourne. Empowered, culture, relationships, collectivity. What a great place to end. Thank you very much for your time, Paul. It's been a masterclass in, in culture, creating it and sustaining it, and wish you all the best for your future. Yeah, mate, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Uh, enjoyed my time. Thank you very much. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Paul Ruse. The key highlights for me were great coaches have technical expertise and build really high standards and relationships within the team. One of the things he found most surprising in his corporate work is just how little organizations put into developing culture, how your own health will influence the health of your organization. So take time to look after it. And his thoughts on life balance and how essential it is to find it for yourself. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Paul and I did. Coming up next on the Great Coaches podcast, we take a look inside the world of competitive cheerleading with chairperson of Sport Cheer England, Joanna Gamper-Cuthbert. It's growing not just in gyms around the country, but it's also becoming popular in schools and particularly in high schools in the UK um, for engaging young women at the at young girls at the age at which they traditionally are dropping out of sports. So around that 14, 15 year age, there is um, good data to suggest that girls are dropping out of sports. And cheerleading is one of those 
kind of sports that is picking those girls back up again and retaining them within physical activity. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 